Last week, I mentioned about our visit some years ago to Baghdad and Babylon. Another important city that we visited was Mosul, the largest city in the north of Iraq. Mosul was built beside the old ruins of Nineveh. Just about everyone has heard the story of Jonah and the whale. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them that if they didn't repent of their evil ways in 40 days, they would be destroyed. Jonah was a reluctant missionary. He was what some would call ethnocentric. He loved his own nation, but he had no desire to go to those wicked Ninevehites, the arch enemies of Israel. So Jonah was directed to go east to Nineveh. Instead, he jumped on a boat and went west. God sent a big storm, so large that the captain and crew became afraid because they thought the boat was about to sink. Jonah finally confesses, this is all my fault. God is punishing me because I'm running away from him. Throw me overboard and the storm will cease. I'm sure Jonah thought, this is the end. But God sent a big fish to swallow him up. And there he sat in the dark, wet, smelly belly of the whale for three days until God told the whale to spit him up on dry land. God spoke to him the second time, go to Nineveh. Well, this time there's no hesitation. And he goes to Nineveh. However, he is still reluctant about the whole idea. This is clearly seen in his very short, just eight words and very negative message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. He certainly hadn't read any books on how to win and influence friends lately. Miraculously, and this book is full of miracles, the people of Nineveh, even the king, they repent and they turn to God. Now, most evangelists would be so thrilled to see the whole city turning to God. But not our nationalistic friend Jonah. He becomes angry. He even has the audacity to say to God, this is just what I suspected. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. Because you are such a compassionate God, when they repented, you forgave them. I guess God was a little astonished at this, although I'm sure nothing really surprises God about us humans. I can imagine all of heaven watching this little drama as it unfolds. First, Jonah gets angry. Now he goes outside of the city, builds a little shelter, sits down, folds his arms, and he pouts. Another miracle occurs. God makes a plant to grow so fast that it is soon giving shade to his shelter. And of course, this makes him feel more comfortable, and now he starts to feel a little happier. But it doesn't last very long. Because the very next morning, and here I think God is having a little fun with Jonah, although I don't think Jonah would realize it until some time later. God sends a worm to eat and kill the plant. Now Jonah is really, really upset, and he cries out to God, why don't you just let me die? It probably crossed God's mind, well, I ought to let him. But instead, our loving, merciful God turns to him and says, Jonah, Jonah, why are you so upset over a plant that dies when you wanted me to kill all of the people in Nineveh? And besides, Jonah, I forgave you when you disobeyed me. Ouch, that really hurt. Usually it doesn't take God very long to get to the bottom line, does it? And at long last, Jonah understood God had used a storm, a fish, a plant, and a worm to teach him that God not only loved him, an Israelite, but God loves all the nations. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today we're going to start a new series on the prophecies of Daniel. Prophecy has never been more relevant. Did you see this Newsweek magazine? Just a few days old. The new prophets of Revelation. Why their biblical left behind novels have sold 62 million copies and counting. 62 million copies, counting. Prophecies have never been more relevant and in a sense never more powerful. During this series, not just today, but during the series, I'm going to answer, God helping me, some very important questions. For instance, is national Israel God's chosen people? We're going to talk about this, we're going to discover it in the series. Now the theology or the eschatology that is taught in the Left Behind series is a very, very interesting theology and it's powerful. It is so powerful that it is believed by almost every Christian in North America. That's 95%. And not only is it believed, but this theology has permeated even the White House and influences our foreign policy. Never say that prophecy is unimportant. It is making Things happen today in the world. So millions of people believe that theology and we're going to answer some tough questions as we go through the series. When will the second coming happen? Could it happen now? Could it happen today? Could the rapture, as it is called, of course the word rapture is not found in the Bible, but could the rapture occur today? Will the church be raptured before the great tribulation? We would like to think so and hope so, but is it true? I received a phone call yesterday from my dear friend uh, uh, Vadim Butov, who was preaching his heart out over there in, in Siberia. And he told me some good news. He's resigning as a conference president so he can devote all his time to the most important work. You know what that is? Preaching the gospel. You know where he's going to? He's going back to the city of Gorky, to Nizhny Novgorod, and he's going to be the pastor of the main church in Nizhny Novgorod, and as soon as we catch our breath, we're going to go over there and run a big campaign again in the city of Gorky. He gave me that good news, but he gave me some bad news. Some months ago, I told you about Pastor Alexei Sasson. You know the story? Remember the story of this man? He just sold his little house and uh, the head deaconess of the church and her daughter needed a ride in his car. He had a little broken down funny little car. I told you the story. It just disappeared off the face of the earth. The dean came down from where he was living with the church members. They searched that whole area couldn't find a thing. He had to go up over a mountain range. Well, just this week, a few days ago, two days ago, some folks were going up over that mountain range in Siberia and they looked down into this great abyss that goes 1,200 feet. There was the car. Snow is melting. Snow is melting. I mean, it's coming on summer. Snow is starting to melt over there. And so they went down and there was the pastor and there were the two ladies. Uh, they'd been murdered. They weren't delivered from the great tribulation before Jesus comes. 
But lots of people have a different theology. They believe that when Jesus comes, the church of God is going to go home to glory and people are going to be delivered from the great tribulation. We're going to talk about that. We're going to also, in the series, answer the question, is the rapture for real? Let me tell you something, and I'm, I'm not going to answer that question today, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about where that idea came from because nobody, virtually nobody in America knows this. During the 1800s, the early 1800s, there was a preacher by the name of Edward Irving and he was holding meetings at Albury Park. This is over in Great Britain. And as he was preaching, the people broke out in ecstatic utterance and started to talk in tongues. And there in his meetings, the people had visions. And they had visions of the rapture and the church raptured home. And after that, the great tribulation and the Antichrist and the rebuilding of the Jewish temple and the stopping of the sacrifices. Now, whether you believe it or not, the interesting thing is the people who started to preach this, which is believed today by virtually every Christian in North America, this idea they didn't find in the Bible. They found through visions and the talking of tongues. We're going to talk about this. Don't forget the name. Edward Irving. I want to talk just a little bit today before we get down to business in the book of Daniel. I want to talk about different systems of interpretation. The two big systems that are believed today by virtually everybody in North America, the two big systems, preterism and futurism. What's preterism? Well, preterism says everything that happened in the Bible prophecies is, is finished. That, that was done. And so the Antichrist was Nero. And back in Daniel chapter 8 where you got this nefarious little horn, that's not a person that's going to come. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. That's preterism. It's all over. It's been done. And then you've got futurism. Futurism says that during the Christian era, God's clock is turned off. You've got a big gap period there. And the prophecies do not apply to us. They're going to be fulfilled during the last seven years that follow the rapture. Now let me tell my friends about this. My evangelical friends the people who are watching and believing in left behind and all of that stuff. Let me tell you something. I want to read you from George Eldon Ladd from his book, The Blessed Hope, page 37-38. It'll probably come as a shock to many modern futurists to be told that the first scholar in relatively modern times to teach futurism was a Spanish Jesuit named named Gribera in 1590. In that year, 1590, he published a commentary on the book of Revelation as a counter-interpretation to the prevailing view among Protestants that identified the papacy with the Antichrist. Antichrist, said Ribera, this Jesuit scholar, would be a single evil person who would, be received by, who would be received by the Jews and would rebuild Jerusalem, abolish Christianity, deny Christ, persecute the church and rule the world for three and a half years. So this stuff that is permeating the world and even the White House and apparently even the Pentagon. This was born during the days of the Counter-Reformation. It was first taught by a great Jesuit scholar. 
because the church of Rome back there is it real from the preaching of the Protestant reformers said we've got to stop this and get the spotlight off the papacy and so we're going to say that the Antichrist is a person who comes at the end of time another method of biblical interpretation prophetic interpretation is historicism that is traditionally the view that is believed by Protestants though 95% of Protestants today do not believe in historicism and historicism says this that God in history during the era of the Jews and during the time of the Christian church has revealed the great events that influence the people of God and so historicism says if you go to the Bible and study the prophecies you can see how God is working today that's the view that was believed by all the Baptists all the Methodists all the Presbyterians all the Lutherans who today 95% of them believe in futurism I want you to notice right now the words of our Lord would you please come to Matthew 24 and verse 15 Matthew 24 and verse 15 and I would emphasize this is just the start today of a series Matthew 24 verse 15 so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through who through the prophet Daniel let the reader understand now that's very very interesting just look at me I'll tell you something Matthew 24 is about the last days it's not talking about the days of the Old Testament and Jesus said that the abomination of desolation is going to stand in the holy place in the last days and during the Christian era I wonder where Jesus is quoting from whom is Jesus quoting Jesus is quoting from the prophet Daniel and you know from where he's quoting in Daniel he's quoting from the passage that talks about the rise of this nefarious little horn that the preterists say was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes but Jesus says this prophecy is going to be fulfilled in the Christian era that's very important for you to understand these truths and then Jesus said read the prophet Daniel and understand it and by the grace of God that is what we're going to try to do today I want you to come now to the book of Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 book of Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 now before we read these verses I want you to hold up your Bible please did you do that hold up your Bible I hope you got a big one there not one of those funny little computer things so hold up your Bible hold it up high if you got a Bible then hold it up don't be ashamed of it I want you to say these words this is my Bible this is God's Word God has a message for me today from his word this message will make me a better person and prepare me for the coming of Christ I now open my heart and uh, my mind to receive God's word in Jesus name, in Jesus name. Amen, and amen. amen and amen now look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 and then we're gonna get underway folks that's just a little preamble like you have the preamble to the Constitution Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of where king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand 
along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, one great theologian friend of mine who has now returned to Australia made this pertinent remark. He said, in this book, the key lies at the door. If you want to be able to open the door and understand, then there is a key that is lying at the door. And the key is found right in these first two verses. It's the Antichrist against the people of God. It's Nebuchadnezzar against the chosen nation. What happens in the first verses? This is the key to the understanding of the whole, whole book. In these first two verses, you have the Babylonians come across the desert and they come from what we call today the land of Iraq. And they come from the great city of Babylon. And they come and they desecrate the people of God's sanctuary. And you notice it talks about the temple of God and they take, and Nebuchadnezzar takes these beautiful vessels back to the temple of his God. In the scriptures, and particularly in the prophecies of Daniel, you have the theme of the great controversy between Jesus Christ and Satan. And this is the theme of the book. And thus the key lies at the door. Now I want you to think about this. Daniel was a good man. And so was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were good young men. Where was their God? I ask you, where was their God? Here Jerusalem is being ravaged, though the, the war against Jerusalem went on over a number of years until Jerusalem was destroyed. But where was God on this occasion? Where was the God of Daniel? Where was El Shaddai that we talk about? Where was the God of the Jews? Where was our God? Why did he stand back and allow the city of Jerusalem to be overthrown? And these fine young men taken as prisoners, prisoners of war to Babylon. Why? I want you to come with me for the answer to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. We're going to start at verse 14 and onwards. 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 14 and onwards and it gives us the answer. Have you got it? 2 Chronicles 36, 14 and onwards. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more, what does it say? Unfaithful. Following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on the people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his word and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. 
They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbaths. The Bible says the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken to Jeremiah. Why did it happen? I ask you, why did it happen? Why was Jerusalem destroyed? These were the people of God. The Jewish people right here. 605 BC, they're the people of God and let, yet their city is destroyed and their sanctuary is overthrown. Where was God? Let me tell you something. The Bible says the people rejected the word of God. God sent them prophets and they turned their backs to the prophets. He sent them messengers, the Bible says, rising early and sending because he had pity on the people and they spurned the word of God. God had given to his people the Holy Sabbath. That's mentioned in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He'd given the people of God the Holy Sabbath, but they desecrated the Sabbath. They did their own business on the Sabbath. If they were living today, they'd be at the mall on the Sabbath. They'd be doing their own work on the Sabbath. And I want you to know something. The God of the Bible is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. And the time came when the children of Israel filled to the top the cup of iniquity. And God said, I will no longer stand for those people. God had placed over Jerusalem a mantle of protection. And God took it away. And the Babylonians came. Listen to me. The God of this Bible is a God of judgment. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you go to one of the great memorials, I think it's the memorial to that great man, Abraham Lincoln. And on the wall, I think it's that memorial. I'm not certain, but I think it is. On the wall of that memorial are the words, when I think that God is just and justice cannot sleep forever. I want you to know today that America and Australia and Europe and the rest of the world are filling up the cup of iniquity and God is going to come in judgment. And God is going to remove the mantle of safety. He started to do it already. Another man said, evil men may have their hour, but God will have his day. I'll never forget when we had the great earthquake out here in California, the North Ridge earthquake, the place that got the worst judgment of God was in the San Fernando Valley and it came up under the porno houses. Now people are talking about this so-called crazy movie. What is it? The day after tomorrow or the morning after something, whatever. People say, it's crazy, it's never going to happen. No, it's ne never going to happen probably like that, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I heard Dr. Billy Graham say some time ago, judgment is coming upon America because America has turned away from God. And it is true. And God is removing the mantle of his mercy and his grace. Have you ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? 
God sent judgment from the fire. From the, from the heavens, fire came down in judgment. God is going to send fire again upon the land. God is going to send pestilences. He's going to send earthquakes. He's going to send tidal waves. Because God is a righteous God. And now for too long we have mocked the prophets of the Lord and we have despised the word of God and we have broken the Holy Sabbath. The wrath of God is going to come. It is the truth. Have you heard of the flood of Noah? Have you heard of the antediluvians in their pride and in their arrogance? And God sent a flood and took them all away. God is going to send a flood again, but a flood of fire. Have you heard of the city of Nineveh? A city that after it had heard the preaching of Jonah, the man of God, the reluctant prophet, turned again to their idols and their pornography. Let me tell you something. The sins of those people back there pile into almost insignificance compared with the sins of today. Judgment is coming. I'm amazed when my so-called Christian friends blaspheme. Went along to Beverly's hairdresser. I go about twice a year. And she's clipping away, lovely lady. You know what she said? Oh my God. Please. Don't you know you're blaspheming? Turn on television. Oh my God. Let me tell you something. The less talented the actor, the more swearing and blasphemy. Can I tell you something? The, many of the actors have got such sick, little, twisted minds that the only way they can get an audience is by blaspheming and using the F word. The sins of the past are nothing compared with the sins of today. And judgment is coming. People say, oh, that movie, that'll never happen. Never be, oh, that's absolutely crazy. That's not. Did you know it is a scientific fact, though, that out in the Atlantic Ocean, thousand miles or more from New York, several thousand miles, there's a large island, and it's become geologically unstable, and trillions of tons of dirt is about or are about to fall into the ocean. They say, we don't know when it's going to happen, but when it happens, it's going to cause a tidal wave a thousand feet high. And by the time it gets to the east coast, it won't be so bad, it'll be 500 feet. People say, it's not going to happen. The judgments of God are already in the land and all the best all the best soldiers, all the best tanks, all the best bombs will be nothing. When God says, let it go. And the angels of God no longer hold back the winds of strife. And the Bible tells us particularly the Sabbath. The Sabbath is desecrated by the Gentiles. It is desecrated by the Jews. It is desecrated by the Christians. It is desecrated by everybody. It is desecrated by some of you. You know why God gave them 70 years captivity? God said because they failed to keep the Sabbath, he was going to give them 70 years of Sabbaths when the land was going to lie fallow. So God came in judgment. They still didn't get smart enough, so he said there's going to be now 70 sevens for 90 years until the coming of the prince who, who can give you rest. The name Daniel is very significant. It means God.
God is my judge. And the book of Daniel is a book of judgment to a people who are asleep in their sins, but who think they are the light of the world. I want you to notice before we give you a exegesis, a verse-by-verse exegesis of the book, I want you to notice the theme of the book. I want you to notice what each chapter says. I will give it to you quickly because I plan to go through the book in detail. Daniel chapter 1 says, those who follow God instead of the gods of Babylon are ten times better. Daniel, let me give you a synopsis of Daniel fast because I've got a lot of territory to go. Daniel chapter 2 verse 1, in the second year of his reign, you know how old he was? Do you know how, how old Daniel was? In Daniel chapter 1, probably 16, 17 or 18. What about the king? Probably about the same 18 something. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summons the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. God sets it up. In Daniel chapter 2, you have the God of Daniel, the unseen God, But here you have the astrologers and all of these phonies. Anybody who is tied up in astrology is foolish because he's being deceived by Babylonian spiritism. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, the message is the God of the stars and the God of Israel and the God of Daniel is infinitely more powerful than these puny astrologers. Daniel chapter 3, what is the message? I wonder. Look at chapter 3 and verse 23. Oh, this is such a wonderful, wonderful, marvelous, terrific book. Daniel 3, 23. Turn in your Bible. To, we've just given you just a little, little teaser here. Daniel 3, 23. Let me see it. I can't find it myself. I've got to oh, over another page. 23, here it comes. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. That's the story of the burning fiery furnace. These young men become fireproof because they follow the God of the Bible. That's Daniel 3. What's Daniel 4 about? Well, here is this king who becomes so proud and you know what happens to him? In Daniel chapter 4, He becomes a crazy man because insanity, my friend, happens to every person who turns away from God. In that chapter, you've got the king of Babylon, the old times Saddam. And when he takes his eyes off God, he becomes a lunatic. You know what's going on in the world today? Lunacy, madness, insanity. People say, oh, you're a Christian. You've got to be crazy. You, and you telling me that? you telling me that I'm crazy? I'm the crazy one? A man who doesn't follow the Bible is the person, the person who turns away from God's laws. He is the person who suffers from spiritual insanity. Daniel chapter 5, what's that about? Well, Daniel 5 is a young man who becomes the king of Babylon. And you know what he does? Listen to this. In his arrogance, he said he's having a big party. He should have been fasting instead of feasting. But there he's having a big party. He's got all these ladies and queens and concubines and He says, bring me the golden chalices out of the temple of Jehovah. What a dumb thing to do. 
He touches the holy things of God and a hand comes and writes on the wall. Meany, meany, tackle, you fasten. You are weighed in the balancers and found wanting. But that chapter says those who touch the holy things of God are going to be destroyed and God's people are going to be delivered. Daniel 6, here Daniel is an old man in his 80s. Uh, pushing maybe 90. And God reserves for him in his old age the greatest test. But the lions don't want him for dinner. The lions won't touch him because here is a man who is true to God, but his enemies are fed to the lions, and it is, it is discovered it wasn't because they lacked appetite that they didn't eat Daniel. Daniel 7, what is the theme of Daniel 7? The theme of Daniel 7, just look, because I've got to get back to all of this in detail. Daniel 7, the battle of the beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, the monster, and then there comes the Antichrist, the little horn, who persecutes the people of God until the judgment comes. Daniel 8, what do we discover in Daniel 8? Well, you're a great church because you've got Bibles. If you go to a church and if you don't turn up your Bible, you've got a big spiritual problem. And if your pastor doesn't preach on the Bible, you ought to fire him because he's a loser. Come over here to Daniel chapter 8. Did you hear that? Uh-huh. Soon I'll get courage to say some plain remarks. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8 verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small. And then you come down. Verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. That's Jesus. Here is the nefarious little horn who makes war against the Christ of God, the gospel of God, the sanctuary of God, the law of God, and the people of God until the judgment comes. Then in Daniel 9, I'm going to preach all of this in detail. Just listen. In Daniel 9, there is the prophecy of the coming of the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord Jesus. In Daniel 10, boy, I can hardly wait to start on these sermons. In Daniel chapter 10, the veil is drawn aside and you see the war between good angels and bad angels. You know there are good angels in this church. You know there are bad angels in this church. You know the bad angels are trying to get you to think about your business instead of listening to me. It's good angels and bad. In Daniel 11 you have the epic. The king of the north against Jerusalem. Daniel 12, the standing up of Michael the great time of trouble, the resurrection, the opening of the books, and the consummation. And God wins. Now that's what we're going to talk about in these meetings. Now, a brief exegesis of Daniel chapter 1. Turn to the text. And if the Bible bores you, it's because you got a problem with the brain. You need to spend time with God. You need to read the Bible. And you need to read it every day. And watch television a lot less because that sort of destroys the brain. People that look at television a lot become pretty dumb. Read the Bible. Daniel chapter 1. Now, we read about Nebuchadnezzar coming, didn't we? So let's pick it up from there. And verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials. Just look at me for a moment. The King James Version says, chief of the eunuchs. So people have said, no wonder Daniel was so pious. He was a eunuch. 
<laughs> it ain't so. The word eunuch is better translated court official. Daniel was not a eunuch. And the next verse, some of you don't even look relieved to hear that. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect. Handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. These are young men, 16 or 17 years of age, prisoners of war in Iraq, lonely, a long way from mum and dad, surrounded by all the seductive temptations, the most beautiful women. And they have their first test. Verse 6, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, his name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. It was rich food. It is true that plain living and high thinking go hand in hand. It was food that most likely had been offered to idols and quite likely it was unclean food. People say, it doesn't matter what you eat. Ah, great doors swing on little hinges. He who cannot master appetite is unworthy of his God. These young men say, Daniel says, takes the lead. We're not going to eat this junk. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, good reason to, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with those that are the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to them and tested them for 10 days. What a wonderful argument for vegetarianism. I am not joking. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Look at me. The first temptation in the garden was food. The first temptation of our Lord Jesus during his fasting for 40 days make these stones become bread. Big doors swing on little hinges. It is true that great eaters and great Drinkers are seldom great at anything else. That is the word of God. 
and the sin of our age is gluttony. And God is a God of judgment. Verse 18, at the time of the end, set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. He found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, 70 years later. He who follows the God of the stars, the God of the Bible, who has moral integrity and who will purpose in his heart, he who obeys the holy laws of the Bible will be ten times better. Amen. Please kneel as we pray. <coughs> as we kneel here today, our Father, we think of the words of the grand old hymn, I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. Bring us home to you today. Bring us back to God. Bring us back to the Bible, the blessed Bible. Bring us back to the holy law of God. Bring us back to the holy Sabbath. Bring us back to temperance, self-control. Teach the young people in this church to know that the world continually spews forth propaganda and lies. But those who follow the word of God are ten times better. And one day, with Daniel, they will be delivered. And as it says in Daniel chapter 12, they will shine like the firmament and as the stars forever and ever. Teach us today to be your children. And like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, to be faithful. For Jesus' sake, amen.